story of Elizabeth's song took us all the way up through verse 46 or 45. Today, we're going to look at verses 46 through 55. I think maybe I had 54 written down, but as I'm looking at the text here now, it's 55. Follow along with me as I read these to you. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we just thank you for your word, not just your written word, but Jesus Christ, our hope, the Prince of Heaven, the incarnate Word of God. That having existed eternally as God, he willingly took on flesh and became part of his own creation. According to your plan, to not only redeem us, but to show us who you are, what you are like, that we might have a real and tangible representation of your character and nature and kindness and love. Lord, as a church, I pray that you would give us godly ambitions, that our desires for our families, for our futures, for our homes, for our work, for for all that we do, would have at its core a desire to glorify you and to see people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That we would desire to to see uh, more than just our own personal success and health and happiness in the world, that we would desire to see your glory spread throughout the world and that we would see everything that we do as a, as a tool for that, Lord. Just give us godly ambitions that seek to spread your fame. Lord, this morning, I want to pray also for Bethel Baptist and Milton Freewater as they uh, gather for worship and sing your praises as I believe they're still allowed to sing your praises. Um, Father, we just pray that they would have a joyful uh, and, and um, awe-filled uh, Christmas celebration throughout this month as they look to your word and seek to celebrate the birth of your son. Lord, we think of John and their, their pastor as he prepares each week for the preaching of the word. Lord, give him great faithfulness to your word and to the gospel, and Lord, bless them accordingly. Lord, may the word sound forth from us, the word of Jesus Christ and all that he is and has done for us. May it sound forth from us. May, may we see everything that we do as as uh, sounding forth your word into the world from our supportive missions to community groups, to Sunday school, to everything that we do, Lord. And we just, um, uh, we ask that you, your word would go forth from us and that your kingdom would grow and that you would use us to do that. Lord, give us open eyes and soft hearts as we look to your word now this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you have ever, like me, had un- announced company. 
I don't know that I've ever had unannounced company at the holidays, uh, but, but, you know, uh, inevitably it happens. Maybe a, a family member or a guest hoping to surprise and bless you shows up unannounced. I suppose depending upon the circumstances around that, that could be very good news. Maybe a desired to see long lost relative. But then, you know, there's a, uh, there's a commercial out right now. I can't even remember what insurance agency it's for, but this couple's bought a house and they say they have ants and they're Ants, not A-N-T-S, but A-U-N-T-S, are going around complaining, nitpicking, po- uh, uh, you know, pointing out everything in the house that's, that's wrong. And so sometimes a guest could be good news, sometimes a guest could be bad news. Fortunately for me, I've only had an unannounced visitor one time, and it was, it was a fine uh, visit. I don't mind having company. In fact, I enjoy it a lot. I love having people at the house. We love having people over. I love seeing friends and family. But, but usually I want to know that they're coming so that I can prepare for their arrival, so that the house can be in order, things can be ready to go when they get there, and we can just enjoy a good time. Well, Jesus' birth did not come unannounced. He didn't just show up in a stable one day without any knowledge or preparation or foresight or thought by God. There was a long line of promises made not only to the nation of Israel, but to the whole world about the coming of Jesus Christ, of of this Messiah who would be born. The world, and particularly Israel, because the plan of God was to start there and to spread out to the whole world as as it has to us, Uh, but the whole world was told to be on the lookout. These, These songs in Luke, Elizabeth's last week at the announcement not only of her son that would be born, but a greater joy in the coming of this son that would be born to Mary, Uh, and Mary's response here. And Zechariah's that we'll look at uh, next week, they're, they're all responses to the joyful arrival of a long-promised guest, one that the nation of Israel was excited to see and, and to have show up. I love those videos. You, you, they're all over like Facebook. I think I must not be the only one who likes them. You know, usually it's this group of kids. They're sitting on the couch. Mom and dad turn on a camera. They're given a gift. They open it up and it's like Disneyland t-shirts or something like that. And the kids are told, we're going to Disneyland. And, and like the kids, they, sometimes they do the most ridiculous and dumb stuff. You're like, man, someday you're going to be sorry that your parents are recording this because you're going to see how you responded in this moment and it's going to look silly. But there's just this pure experience excitement, this, this wonderful thrill of something that they had hoped for, something that they had longed for, something they wanted and were looking forward to and meant great joy in their minds and great happiness. And, and then, then the announcement that it's here, it's time, we're actually going, we're going to get in the car, we're going to get on a plane, we're going to go to this place and we're going to have fun as a family. And this uh, just joy comes erupting out of the kids. Well, as we continue through this series in Luke and looking at uh, Elizabeth, having already looked at Elizabeth, and today Mary and Zechariah, it's almost like this is this lineup, right, of, uh, again, Elizabeth, Mary, Zechariah, then after that we'll see Simeon, and the week after that we'll see, or the shepherds, rather, uh, and then the week after Christmas we'll look at Simeon. It's like this, this group of kids who have been told, it's time, we're going, joy is here. So it's kind of fun to see these responses to them. 
As I've mentioned, though, the, the, uh, the announcement that this would happen, that God would send one son, the son, the ultimate son, uh, to fix so many things that had been broken in God's people was not unannounced. In Genesis 3.15, Eve was promised a son who would defeat Satan, who, who would conquer the very one who led Adam and Eve or tempted Adam and Eve into sin in the garden. In Genesis 9.27, we're told that this son would come through the line of Shem, one of the sons of Noah, one of the three sons of Noah who survived with him in the ark. In Genesis 12, 3, we're told that that son of Shem would come through Abraham and that Abraham was a descendant of Shem. And again, we're told that he would bless all the nations and all people. In Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12, Numbers 24, 17, and Deuteronomy 18, 15, all show us that the son would come through Judah, that this, this kingly line of the fourth son of Jacob, Abraham's great-grandson. And so Adam and Eve are promised the son. Excuse me. Adam and Eve are promised the son. And then Noah is promised one of his sons will, will be the one from whom this son comes. And then we find that it is Abraham, one of Shem's descendants, who this son, whose line this son will come through. And then we're told even of his great-grandson um, that, that it would come through Judah, this, this kingly line of the 12 tribes of Israel. In 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17 and Psalm 132, they all teach us that this, this son would come now going further down the line through David, another descendant of Judah. Isaiah 7.14 predicts that he would be born of a virgin. Micah 5.2 tells us that his birthplace would be Bethlehem. Isaiah 43-5 and Malachi 3.1 tell us that there would be a forerunning prophet who would prepare the way for this promised son. And that's John the baptizer, who we saw would be the, the son of uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah last week. And, and these promises that tell us who the king would be, what line he would come from, where he would be born, what events would take place around his birth so that we might all be on the lookout for him, they barely scratch the surface of how much God told his people to be looking for in order to know when this promised son would arrive. J. Barton Payne listed in his study 574 verses in the Old Testament that referred to 127 predictions about the Messiah. Walt Kaiser, and that's not even the most. There are others who, who, who think they've found more. Maybe some of them are pressing verses a little harder than you or I might understand. But if you ever want a, a good exercise, I would recommend Walt Kaiser's book, The Messiah in the Old Testament. Walt Kaiser's book, The Messiah in the Old Testament, where he in that book identifies 65 predictions in the Old Testament about the Messiah. This was long announced. But here's the big question that faces us today. Why? Why did God uh, set this plan in motion? Why did God declare that he would send a son? Why did God uh, make this plan to become a part of his own creation? 
Well, in order to understand that, we have to go back to the very beginning, the Garden of Eden. And we'll just highlight this really quickly. God creates everything. He created Adam and Eve, and he created this garden, and he places them in the garden. There was no sickness, no sadness, no death, no sorrow, no tears, no, I was going to say labor, but I should say no toil. Adam was given a job to do. Adam and Eve had work to do in tending the garden, but it wasn't by the sweat of his brow and the pain of his back that, that, that it would be tended until after the fall. God created them in perfect, perfect uh, happiness. But Adam and Eve, like we do, they chose to try and define for themselves what was good. Rather than trusting a good God as to what was good, they decided that they wanted to determine what was good and chose sin as we do over obedience to God and entered into the world through this sin, uh, sickness, disease, pestilence, sadness, death, all of the difficulties of life. And ever since, the world has just been in this great downward spiral. But the worst part of our sin and maybe the most, if you have children, maybe this is the most important thing to teach your children about sin. Sin always damages relationships. Maybe not, maybe not completely, but as husbands, wives, parents, children, friends, our sin always damages our relationships around us. But supremely so in our relationship with God. That sin, this sin that has all these bad effects on the world around us, ultimately it, it affects our relationship with God. But from the moment Adam and Eve sinned and the moment God announced the devastating effects of their sin, he announced a rescuer. He announced his plan to save us from all that we had broken, to set it right. And we celebrate Christmas because it is this baby born 2,000 years ago, 2017 or 2023, somewhere in that range, years ago. But it's not just that he came to fix what we broke. It's not just that he came to rescue us from the effects and the consequences of our wrongdoing. More than that, he came to show us what God was like. Because sin does separate us, and, and God, uh, our sin separated us from God so ultimately, so completely, so fully that we could no longer see him. Before Adam and Eve sinned, they walked with God in the garden, and they talked with him in the coolness of the day. They could speak face to face, but after sin, there was a separation. There was a, a division being in the presence of God would certainly mean sudden death because God is perfectly holy and good and just and cannot tolerate any wrongdoing. We, we need, we have this desperate need not only to be forgiven of our sin, but to, to know who God is. The Bible is full of history and teaching that shows us what God is like but our clearest and greatest representation of understanding the nature and character and heart of God comes in knowing Jesus because he, was, he is, not just was, he is God in the flesh. It's one thing to know about Abraham Lincoln. 
It's a whole other thing to have known Abraham Lincoln. And Jesus, this baby born, was not just born so that he might redeem us and rescue us and save us, so that grace, not judgment, might be God's final word in our stories. But he came to show us what God is like. John 1, 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That is, Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 14 then goes on to say, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And verse 18 goes on to say, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. But he, that is Jesus, he has made him known. John in his uh, gospel in chapter 14, verses 8 and 9, to say, Philip, that's one of the uh, disciples, said to him, Lord, show us the Father. And it's enough for us. So, so we believe as good Trinity Baptist Church folks that God has eternally existed in three persons. It's hard for us to grasp. Three persons, one God. It's because we're not created like that. God is creator. He is above our understanding. But he has eternally existed as three persons in one God. I made the mistake in Bible college one time uh, in, in trying to make the point that that was difficult to understand, and it is difficult to understand, and we'll never fully wrap our minds around what that means. But I made the mistake of telling one of my uh, professors that you cannot explain the Trinity philosophically. I thought I had him like a novice chess player thinking I've beat the grandmaster. You know, I've got him in check. And he goes, well, certainly you can. I said, no, you can't. He said, oh, yeah, you can. I said, okay, then do it. He said, fine. The Trinity, three who's, one what? He won. <laughs> I lost that match. We don't fully understand that. Three who's, one what? But the Son of God, eternally existing as God, shows us what the Father is like. And that's what Philip is asking Jesus. Lord, show us the Father. Show us what God is like. And that'll be enough for us. Verse 9 of John 14. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long? And you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? To, to see what Jesus is like, to understand who he is, his heart, is to understand what God is like. I, probably like many of us, fall victim to this idea of a tender, gentle, gracious, caring Jesus and an angry, vindictive, wrathful father. But if we understand and comprehend Jesus to be kind and gracious and caring, as he is, that is how we must understand the Father as well. This is not to say that God will ever tolerate sin, but it is to say, as James says, that mercy, God's mercy, triumphs over judgment. God desires for the final word in our story to be that of grace and mercy 
not that of judgment for our wrongdoing. So what is God like? Well, that is a huge question, and we cannot possibly uh, extract all of that from this, this one text and in this sermon today. But that is what Mary's song is all about. Mary's song is all about what is the nature and character of God like. We don't have to imagine what he's like. And let me just warn you of the danger and treachery of imagining what God is like. The, the first and greatest commandment in the, in the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament is to love God. And the second is to love our neighbor as ourself. The, the command uh, to love God is so important that the vast majority of the way we see that getting worked out in the Old Testament is to not love idols. But we shouldn't think that idols only exist in carved images or, or metal statues that we bow down to. All it takes for us to commit the sin of idolatry is to imagine God as something other than he is. To, to just think untrue thoughts about him. To, to, to understand him in some way other than he has revealed himself to be. And so Mary's song and all of scripture is so wonderful because it doesn't leave us wondering what is God like. There's a great principle, though, to be learned in Mary's song, and that is that she is not simply imagining what God is like either. Her, her song here, as these verses unfold, and she praises God for what he's about to do through her and the blessings that he is bringing to her by bringing this child into her life, it is packed with scripture, which is remarkable to me. If you remember last week, we saw that, that it is likely that Mary is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 13 years old. That's the typical Jewish marrying age in this day and in this culture. She would not have had access to a Bible. I don't think we understand the great privilege uh, it is to have a Bible in our hand. The vast majority of history did not. It wasn't until about 400 years ago that, that a Bible in every plowboy's hand, as William Tyndale used to say his goal was, uh, was, was not something that was a reality. Being from northern uh, Israel, Galilee, as we saw last week, she would not have had regular access to the temple, so she would have had to go to a synagogue to worship. It would have probably been the only place around her that actually had a Bible. Uh, in, in those days, the Bible, as they thought of it, uh, the Old Testament, uh, was on, there was no printing press. It had to be handwritten, and scrolls took a tremendous amount of time to write, and they were valuable and only accessible to the rich. We know that Mary did not come from a rich family because after Jesus' birth, when her and Joseph go to the temple to sacrifice, according to the Old Testament law, they bring two pigeons which was the alternate offering at the birth of a child for the poor. And so they bring a poor person's offering. There's no way Mary would have had a, a Bible. But as we go through this prayer, she says, My soul magnifies the Lord, that's Psalm 34, 2. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, which we find in 2 Samuel 22, Isaiah 43, 45, 49, 60, uh, 
and, and others' verses as well. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, 1 Samuel 1. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, Genesis 30. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, Psalm 126. And holy is his name, Psalm uh, 49 and 119. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation, Psalm 102. He has shown strength with his arm, Isaiah 59, 1. And there's even more than that. What erupts out of Mary when she sings God's praise over what he's doing, when, when it's that couch moment, Christmas morning, you're going to Disneyland, the Messiah is coming, what erupts out of her is the word of God. She doesn't imagine what God is like. She, under the inspiration of Holy, the Holy Spirit, gives us Holy Scripture, showing us what God is like. And so today, quickly, I think, I want to look at five attributes of our promise-keeping God. Five attributes of our promise-keeping God, or characteristics. Number one, God is compassionate. God is compassionate. Verse 48, look with me as she says, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. It, it, this has the idea that he has looked down. In fact, in, in Genesis, when, when the, the people in their sin build the Tower of Babel to try and reach the heights of God, they're trying to replace God. They did it with a tower. Our culture today does it with science. We build this ivory tower, so to speak, of, of trying to explain away the need for God to rise to the heights of God. And the language that God uses in Genesis is that he had to look down from heaven. Like not, like, not just look down, but like squat down. This, this tower that, that these people are trying to build in their attempt to be as great as God, God has to get down on his hands and knees, almost with a magnifying glass, to see the speck of what they're building. It's kind of the picture here that God, high, exalted, lofty, lifted up, has looked down on what? On the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Uh, the, the definition, uh, Webster's definition of compassionate is sympathetic consciousness of others' distress with a desire to alleviate it. A sympathetic consciousness of others' distress with a desire to alleviate it. In other words, Mary sees that God cared about her condition, and not just the condition of sin that has caused this downward spiral in the world that we live in, but, but he cares about her. He cares about her individually. He wasn't content to just sit in heaven and let us suffer and perish. No, in great compassion from the very beginning, God announced a plan through a child to fix all that was broken. I think it's easy for us to, to turn a blind eye to suffering. It's, it's probably a little obvious, but one of my favorite things in the world is ice cream. I love ice cream. Did you know that hunger in the entire world annually could be alleviated with what Americans spend on ice cream in one year. 
If we just stopped making ice cream and took all the money that we would spend on ice cream and, and sent it out, we could feed the whole world so that no one went hungry. It's easy to turn a blind eye, to live in our warm houses, to want bigger, better things, to take bigger car payments, bigger house payments, more ice cream. But God's not like that. He doesn't sit in heaven with his bowl of ice cream going, I'm not too worried about what's going on down there. I'm happy. I'm, I'm content. I'm full. I'm filled. I'm a trinity of three persons in one God. I have relationship. I have affection. I have love. I have worship. I have glory and honor all built in to who I am. I don't need anything else. Just let him be. No, no. God looks down on Mary and on you and me. He cared enough to give up his comfort and to suffer with. Webster's definition was sympathetic consciousness of others' distress with a desire to alleviate it. The word passion, we tend to mean something uh, uh, affiliated with love, but can also mean uh, uh, suffer. When we talk about the passion of Christ at Easter, it's his suffering. Uh, sympathy is with passion. It is to suffer with. Why was this Christ child born to us? Because God wasn't content to eat his ice cream in heaven uh, and just let us be. No, he was a compassionate God. He is a compassionate God who rather than just, just staying absent and letting things go, he came down at Christmas, took on flesh, became one of us to suffer with us because he is a compassionate God. Secondly, God is gracious. God is gracious. Verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. God is gracious. God's graciousness is his desire to give good gifts. It is his desire to give good gifts regardless of the person's deserving it. Certainly Mary sees nothing in herself that is deserving of God's favor and blessing. And we shouldn't see that either. The truth of the matter is, if we're really honest with ourselves, if you look inward, if you look in your own heart and life and mind for a reason why God should be gracious to you, you won't find it. You have to look inside his heart, inside his mind, inside his character. He gives to us not because we are so deserving of the gift. That's not grace. When you get something that you have earned, that's a wage. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. And God loves to look down in compassion on the humble estate of his servants and to do great things for them. A.W. Tozer said, God's grace, or grace that is, takes its rise far back in the heart of God, in the awful and incomprehensible abyss of his holy being. Not awful is in bad, but awful is in tremendous. God's grace takes its rise far back in the heart of God, in the awful and incomprehensible abyss of his holy being. But the channel through which it flows out to men is Jesus Christ crucified and risen. It is this baby that would be the channel through which God's compassionate grace would flow to Mary. And it is the channel through which his compassionate grace flows to you and I. Thirdly, God is holy. God is holy. 
This is one of the hardest things to talk about when we try to understand God. I don't even think we can really wrap our mind around it. We've probably all seen da Vinci's uh, painting of the Lord's Supper, right? Where, where there's a long table and a room with some windows in the back and Jesus is sitting there and the disciples are around him. Did you know that when da Vinci painted that, he painted the whole painting except the faces of all of the people at the table? He painted the whole painting first, and then he went in to paint the faces, and he painted all of the disciples' faces, but not Jesus. And then very, very quickly, at the end of the painting, he just quickly put together a face on Jesus, and then he said this. He said, there is no use. I cannot paint him. He didn't know how to capture the, the person of Christ in a simple painting of his face. And that's how I feel talking about the holiness of God. How do I capture all that it is that, that means uh, that, that it is God's holiness? I don't know how. John Howe, a 16th century Puritan, called it the transcendent attribute of God. That is, in everything that he does, he is holy. In his love, he is holy. In his justice, he is holy. In his mercy and graciousness and kindness, he is holy. In all things, he is holy. Most simply, the word holy just means set apart. When you, see, uh, when you read the Bible and it talks about uh, the vessels in the temple being holy, they were set apart for a specific use. They weren't to be used for common things. They were, they were set apart for special things. And, and that's really what holy means. And in so many ways, God is holy. He is set apart from everything else because he alone is creator and everything else is creation. He is set apart from this physical world that we live in because he is spirit and we are flesh, except in Jesus, the two meet. But mostly, holy it means that he is separate from all that is wrong, all that is unjust, all that is inequitable. I, I'll, I'll tell you, um, I won't tell you all the details now because time will avail us, but this week I'm going to write a blog on what capitalism and communism can teach us about the gospel. What do I mean by that? Capitalism demand, demands equal opportunities for all. Communism demands equal outcomes for all. But in the gospel, there is equal opportunity to believe and equal outcome for all who do believe. We live in a world, why do I bring that up? We live in a world right now that is crying out against any perceived form of injustice and inequity and favoritism or racism or sexism of any kind. There's something uniquely, even if much of the way the world around us goes about it, there's something uniquely wonderful about that. Because God is a just God. He demands justice. He demands holiness. He demands righteousness. He is completely and totally set apart from all sin and from all wrongdoing. And anytime we perceive something he does as being wrong, and let's just be honest, sometimes we think, man, God, it sure seems like you got that wrong. It's not because of any injustice or inequity or sin in him. It's because of the injustice or inequity or, or sin in us. It's not a failure in his holiness. It's a failure in mine. He is completely set apart from all sin. And really what this means is that holiness is God's beauty. 
Stephen Charnock, another 16th century Puritan, said, Power is God's hand or arm. Omniscience is his eye. Mercy, his heart. Eternity, his duration. But holiness is his beauty. God is completely and wholly and totally set apart from all that is ugly or bad or wrong. Fourthly, God is merciful. Uh, I should have pointed us to verse 49 there where Mary said, uh, for, he is, for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name, verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mercy is the other side of the coin of grace. If grace is a desire to give good gifts, mercy is God's concern for our miserable plight. If, if grace is God's desire to give good gifts, it is his mercy that is concern for the bad things in our life. One way to understand this is to think about a, a, a bank account. Or what I did yesterday was I, I Googled the national debt. The counter was going way too fast to even land on a number, but we'll just say that as of yesterday, the national debt was something above, somewhere above, $27 trillion. It is an, an, an unpayable debt. But imagine somebody in their, their great wealth, an unexhaustible uh, amount of wealth, were to come along to the U.S. and say, I'm going to fix that debt, and they deposited $27 trillion into the national treasury. That would be merciful. There's this huge debt that cannot be paid back. And somebody else pays the debt, rescuing us from the trouble of that debt. That's mercy. But if that same person with inexhaustible wealth and riches were to deposit another $27 trillion into that account so that we might have resources going forward, that is grace. Mercy rescues us out of trouble. Grace gives us good gifts. God is holy, and he demands holiness. We are sinful and not holy. But Jesus, this baby, was sent to live the perfect life you and I can't live. And then die a death he didn't deserve. Never forget this Christmas that Easter is the goal of Christmas. This infinitely valuable, infinitely uh, valuable. <laughs> this infinite treasure of God himself becoming flesh was given not only to live the perfect life you and I cannot live, but to die the death you and I deserve to die so that God can not only wipe out our sin, but give us his righteousness. God is both gracious and merciful. And if that's not love, I don't, I don't know what is. I don't know what is. This is what Mary understood the gift of this child to be about. While the rest of the nation of Israel, or much of the nation of Israel, was looking for a political leader to save them from their troubles, boy, we should be have, uh, that should have something tangible for us right now. While the rest of the world was looking for a political leader to rescue it, Mary was looking for a savior. And she was told she would be the one through which he was born.
And lastly, we see in all of this that God is sovereign. That God is sovereign. God was using all of the events of history of Adam and Eve and Noah and Shem and Abraham and Jacob and Judah and Mary and Joseph to bring about this great rescue plan. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 again says, when the fullness of time had come, when the fullness of God's timing, when the the fullness here has the idea of completion, when the completion of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. How amazing is it that God used all of history, all of human history, all of Israel's history to bring about his plan to bring this Savior so that the final word of God over human history could be grace and mercy and not judgment. How do we respond to that? We respond in faith. We respond in faith. We, we trust. His mercy and grace are free, but they must be received. They must be met with, with open arms. You cannot cling, as Hebrews says, to the sin that so easily entangles us and cling to God. If your ship goes down and you're hanging onto a plank of wood for dear life and the Coast Guard shows up in a helicopter and they toss you a basket, you got to let go of the wood to get in the basket. And so it is with Christ. You cannot cling to your sin and to Christ. We must empty our hands of the sin which so easily entangles us, that is repentance, and cling to Christ in faith. A.W. Tozer again said, God is merciful as well as just. He has always dealt in mercy with mankind and will always deal in justice when his mercy is despised. Oh, may your Christmas be filled with the knowledge of God's holy and gracious and merciful nature. I would implore you today, if you're still clinging to your sin, rather than to the Savior. Let go of it today. Confess it to him and receive him by faith that you might be rescued out of your miserable plight. Heavenly Father, let our Christmas be filled with the glorious knowledge and joy and delight of your Son. May we always have images and pictures and understanding of you in our mind as gracious and merciful and sovereign, but also just. Lord, we ask that not only in this place, but in the world around us, more and more and more people would receive your son by faith and experience your mercy rather than your justice for despising your mercy. Lord, may we not only enjoy and delight in your mercy, but may we go forth as merciful people, having been redeemed by you. Lord, we thank you for this child, this gift who came so that we might see what you're like, so that we might know who you are, so we might understand your holiness and your grace and your mercy and your compassion and your sovereignty. We thank you for this most tremendous of all gifts, Jesus Christ, our risen and perfect Savior, 
who is able to save us uttermost sinners to the uttermost because he is an uttermost savior. And it is in his name and for his glory and our good we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.